This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Meaningful progress on climate takes more than individual action. At this point, you can't make the math work one household at a time, one light bulb at a time. So on the eve of the recent climate conference in San Francisco, we asked how solutions could be led by states, cities, businesses, and advocacy groups. It's about us working structurally in connection with our decision makers on the inside and informing solutions, because the solutions really do come from us. Especially with the federal government abdicating its own leadership role. We have to forget about the things we can't change and we don't like, and we have to make it the world we want. That's it. It's hard work. Pull up your pants. Let's go. Let's talk solutions, up next on Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California. Today's show was recorded in collaboration with Capital Public Radio on the eve of Governor Jerry Brown's recent climate summit. We gathered five leaders to ask how cities, states, and companies are bypassing federal inaction to advance climate solutions. We need to get together, figure out how you address and drive solutions to climate that actually end up in not just a cleaner and healthier and more sustainable world, but one that's more just. Gina McCarthy is director of the Center on Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at Harvard University's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. She's also former administrator of the U.S. EPA under President Obama. For McCarthy, a cleaner, healthier world enables individuals to work for change. The most important thing an individual can do at this point is be a little bit less of an individual. Bill McKibben is founder of 350.org and is one of the nation's leading climate activists and authors. He argues that larger movements are key to changing the climate status quo. The next Bill McKibben or Gina McCarthy might be sitting in front of Cool Effect right now donating 10 bucks and, you know, and we'll, we'll see where that goes. Marissa D. Beloy is executive director of the Overlook International Foundation and CEO of Cool Effect, which helps people band together to reduce the carbon pollution that causes climate change. I don't think there's any way that this gets solved without the voice of the American people putting bounds and putting restrictions on the way that capitalism works. Tom Steyer is founder and president of NextGen America, which is taking the climate fight to the ballot box and college campuses around the country. We need to have bold vision, innovative solutions that's coming from the bottom up, that's coming from all of us in this room and so many people who are not here. Gloria Walton is president and CEO of Strategic Concepts in Organizing and Policy Education, an environmental justice organization in Los Angeles. Here's our conversation about the power and politics of climate instability. Gloria Walton, let's begin with you. How did you get into climate as an issue area that you were concerned about? So I guess it was kind of in 2004. For people who don't know about SCOPE, uh, we're a social justice organization known for our community organizing, leadership development, uh, civic and voter engagement work, but we're also known for our job creation initiatives. And so when we thought about the climate sector, we were actually seeing it as an economic opportunity. And in particular, trying to think about how do we create jobs for low-income African-American and Latino families uh, that are poor and working class, like the ones who live in South Central Los Angeles. And at that time, it was billions of dollars that were being invested coming down the pipe. And so we were doing our research, we figured out that the top polluters at that time were our buildings. And if you're familiar with LA infrastructure, we have a pretty old infrastructure. <laughs> and so we saw this as a great opportunity to create good paying unionized jobs. And that was in 2004. Then in 2005 came around and Katrina hit. And the headlines were saying the eye of the storm was in Gulf Coast, Mississippi. And what didn't make the headlines was my mother and my family and 
all of the families in my mother's neighborhood in Jackson, Mississippi. And my mom was devastated, all of the families. Trees fell on homes, schools, there was flooding, and both of those things happened to my mother's home. FEMA came for some and not for others. I was successfully able to raise a few thousand dollars to support my mom to get this, her roof fixed, uh, to get all of the water removed, and for her to be able to get a little bit of furniture. And that appeased her for a minute. And as kind of months passed, um, and we all pretty much moved on, my family didn't. And if you're familiar with Jackson, Mississippi, it's pretty humid there. So all of that water that we thought we removed actually saturated the walls and turned to toxic mold. And so my mom's first home that she was able to buy through an FHA loan um, with her hard-earned savings, mind you, she's a single mom, I grew up in poverty, um, mother of three, went into foreclosure and she lost that home. And Technically, she's still in recovery because she's never been able to purchase another home. And if I fast forward to today, I think about one of our members, Miss Olivia Barber, in South Central Los Angeles. And for people who are not familiar with South Central, it's an area, we, de we define the community by the freeways that surround it. So the 10 freeway to the north, the 105 to the south, the 110 to the east, and the 405 to the west. And then we have stuff like the Imperial Highway running through our community which means that diesel trucks also love to come through our community, um, heading to the ports, the ports of Los Angeles. And Miss Olivia Barber has COPD. She's been living with it, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And essentially it's a respiratory disease. And so on these extreme heat days that we've all been experiencing, 117 degrees, 111 degrees, 115 degrees, um, South LA being a highly concretized community that has minimal shade trees. So on these days, her COPD is exacerbated, which means that her cost for medication goes up because she has to buy more. Um, she's not able to go to work some days. And the air conditioner that she bought, one that you, know, that you just put in a window, um, she ran it one day and it actually made her electric bill, her power bill, go up $20, which actually matters for her. So when I think about climate and climate solutions, I believe that we have to have an intersectional approach that's both about economic resilience, that's also about environmental resilience at the community level. And I believe that, I want to believe anyways, that all of us in this room and definitely all of the, us on this panel I know don't want to have a new clean green economy that still has the same structural inequities and racism and income inequality that exists today. And so when I think about climate solutions, I believe that I want us to have my mother at the table, workers, Miss Barber, uh, folks who can actually tell their story and share their solutions so that we actually have solutions that don't just benefit the few, but benefit many. Gina McCarthy, you believe that poverty is at the root of a lot of what climate is about, but it's not often talked about in the climate conversation. So tell us about you, how you see that connection between poverty and climate. Well, I, I view climate as, as a pollution problem. It is, in my words, carbon pollution is just like every other pollutant. It actually impacts the poor in minority communities more heavily than anyone else. It impacts our kids and our elderly. And a carbon pollution exacerbates those problems. Um, it creates continued inequalities. It keeps poor communities poor. It doesn't allow them economic opportunities. At its heart, carbon pollution is not just the biggest threat that we have to public health and our economy, but it could represent, I think as Gloria indicated, our sort of wake-up call that it isn't just an environmental problem, it's a health problem, it's about families, it's about communities, and it gives us a wonderful opportunity to think about how you address and, and, and drive solutions to climate that actually end up in not just a cleaner and healthier and more sustainable world, but one that's more just. 
If we miss that opportunity, then we are going to continue to slide back. That's not what democracy is about. That's not what working in public service is about. It's about recognizing all those challenges and finding solutions that meet all of them. And I believe we can. Tom Steyer, is that possible without changing capitalism? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Well, glad he got that question. We want to keep this to 30 seconds. <laughs> Look, I don't think there's any way that this gets solved without the voice of the American people putting bounds and putting restrictions on the way that capitalism works. Because I, I, there is a sense that is completely false in the United States that's been around for a few decades that somehow there is a market that is just and efficient and sent down by God, and that if we <laughs> monkey with it, that somehow we're gonna be upsetting the natural just order. And that is a fallacy and a myth. Every single market in the world is run according to rules set by human beings. So if, if you take a simple example about the employment market, a 100 years ago, you could have hired someone who was 12 years old to work for you for 14 hours and paid him 25 cents. We, you can't do that today because the American people won't stand for it because we think it's wrong. So when we think about what Gene is talking about, when we think about what Gloria is talking about, which is how we choose to pollute, how we as a society choose to allow a corporation to pollute, that's up to us. And that is a question for people who are thinking about the greater good of the human beings in society and the justice that's necessary if we're going to have the kind of society that we want. So it's absolutely incumbent on the government of the United States that the people who've been elected to represent the will of the people have to represent those people and put the bounds on what's permissible in the market, have to put rules so that people don't, in effect, that low-income communities or communities of color don't become the cesspools and the dumping grounds right. for polluters. And is that changing the nature of capitalism? That's recognizing mm. the way that the world actually works and that there is an absolute important critical role for government in living up to the values that we share and standing up for the people in society who otherwise would be unfairly picked on. Bill McKibben, a lot of environmentalists come from comfortable positions and stations in life in the United States, and they kind of want to swap out the brown energy for the green energy and leave the rest of, of things in order. And they're kind of maybe threatened by some of the things that we've heard here today. Is that fair? That, that they're, they, want, they want clean air, but, you know... I don't know. I mean, sure, you can always find caricatures to fit a stereotype, but, you know, my sense is that um, climate change or global warming has had a kind of salutary effect on the way that lots of people are understanding the world. I remember when we started 350.org, uh, we held the first big day of action that we held. We had 5,200 demonstrations around the world in 181 countries. And the pictures were flowing in 20, 30 a minute from around the planet. And it took about five minutes of watching them to realize that Almost everyone we were working with was poor, black, brown, Asian, young, because that's what almost everybody on planet Earth is. And when people, sometimes people say, oh, climate change is an opportunity, uh, you know, it's, it seems a little much, really. Um, but it is an opportunity in the sense of recognizing that we actually do live on a particular planet where things move around really easily. And where people get shafted in the most remarkable ways. I mean, Gloria's mother lost her home. That was a really powerful story. And she would identify, I imagine, with the people that we work with all over the world who are literally losing their homelands, you know? Their countries are disappearing beneath the ocean. And those people are active, leading, the leading, parts of this movement around the world. That's who's making change. So, yeah, I, I mean, truthfully, the idea that environmentalism is, you know, something that rich white people do 
I mean, at this point, rich white people are mostly the problem, no? I mean, um, a, 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 a world with... it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look at me. <laughs> I got the football blue, gonna spread the news all around. You're listening to a Climate One conversation recorded at the recent Climate Summit in San Francisco. Coming up, we'll hear how solving the climate crisis intersects with other social issues. It makes me think about racism. It makes me think about sexism. It makes me think about xenophobia. Every issue that we work on, including climate, is rooted in all of that icky stuff. That's up next when Climate One continues. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're listening to a Climate One program recorded at the recent Climate Summit in San Francisco. My guests are Marissa D. Beloy from Overlook International Foundation, Gina McCarthy, former head of the EPA under President Obama, the climate author and activist Bill McKibben, the investor and advocate Tom Steyer, and Gloria Walton, an environmental justice leader in Los Angeles. Gina McCarthy, the term green jobs is often used to sort of sell. Tell, tell us what you think about that term, green jobs, and how it might reflect difficulty connecting with certain parts of the country. What's embedded in that term? I really, I, I don't know what a green job is. Every job ought to be green, I, right. I think, you know? <laughs> but that's just me, maybe. I, I, you know, I think the challenge with that is that what people don't understand is that when the world shifts to be cleaner and healthier, you can grow a much stronger economy and it creates jobs. That's the jobs that you want to have. Now, if that's what you want to call green, that's fine. But when you say green job, it sounds elitist. It sounds like it's not open to everybody. Um, it sounds like it's a funky little thing where you take people for hikes or something. So I'm not a big fan of, of, of articulating green versus everything else. I think I want to make sure that we mainstream these ideas. I'm extraordinarily concerned that climate has become so partisan that it's not, it's not talked about among families. You know, you, and I think we have to get over these ideas that there is, you know, a, a green world and then everything else. You know, I, I just think we need to get together, figure out how the jobs of the future are the ones that create a sustainable, healthy, and just world. Those are the jobs that are green to me. I don't care what, what you want to say. Tom Steyer, you have an organization active on college campuses around the country, Red States. How do you message and try to connect with people? You're a San Francisco liberal. How do you connect with people in other parts of the country who don't want to talk or you know, think San Francisco liberalism will keep away? Well, our organization is on 421 college campuses this year. And we talk to people, young people under 35, about the issues that they're most concerned about, which pretty much across the country involve the cost of higher education, which is a, a, a killer issue that people don't really recognize. Healthcare is a killer issue. Racial justice across the country, people under 35 are very, very concerned with, and climate and the environment. And that's pretty much any place you go. And what I think about American politics today, and this does answer your question, Greg, is that young people vote at, people under 35, which to me is young, um, vote at half the rate of other American citizens. And it's not that they're not informed and passionate and, or lazy, they have an issue. And the issue is they don't think that the system responds to their needs, and they don't think either party tells the truth. When we're talking about energy and climate, we're talking about something that they absolutely know in their bones, has a huge justice element to it, they know that it's an issue that if people are talking about pushing it out and not caring, they know it will affect them. And it's an issue where that entire generation doesn't want to see this swept under the rug. They know that it's one of the issues where the older people in America want to basically pass a gigantic debt onto them, incur a huge debt, and pass it on to their generation and let them deal with it. So actually, I don't think there is any kind of regional issue in terms of youth in the United States of America. I think that when we go to red states, when we talk to pe young people there, they are absolutely on the same wavelength, which they are sick and tired of people lying to them 
and they're sick and tired of people hiding the truth. And I think when you get into an honest dialogue, Americans are much more similar across party lines, across geographic lines than people generally know and that they tend to be very compassionate, very brave, and very ready to act. Gloria Walton, tell us about Taylor Mayfield. I don't know how, how old Taylor Mayfield is, but there's a story there about him trying to get into a union where there were some obstacles for him. Yeah, this is about our green jobs program that we actually launched back in 2006. Um, and the entree point was really municipal retrofits for us. And so that meant that we were going to retrofit city-owned buildings. We saw this as an entree point for people like Mr. Mayfield, who lives in South Central Los Angeles. Um, he's a black man, older. Uh, maybe he can be kind of like my father. He kind of is like a father to me, really. So we invited the Building Trades, uh, an International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers in particular, to a community meeting. We packed the house, standing room only, and Mr. Mayfield, you know, we're having like a pretty good conversation and some dialogue about what's possible and the jobs that can be created. And uh, Mr. Mayfield stands up and he looks this representative in the eye and he's just like, I know you mean well, but black folks are locked out of the building trade, so why should we work with you? It was silent, just kind of how this room is right now. <laughs> and I was even shocked, because you know, you always try to have a few leaders prepped in the, in the room, right, to kind of ask those provocative questions. But this was something that just came from his heart and that was real, that we actually needed to address. And it was our members who helped us create a program that had paid a apprenticeship opportunity. It had a cohort model. Uh, labor unions actually provided bus tokens for people to get to work um, because, you know, a lot of people have been under and unemployed for years and don't have transportation. Um, we were really creative with ways for people to actually get all of their hours. So if you couldn't pass some of the tests, then you would actually get trained for several more hours. And so the point was to guarantee your success in the program and to make sure that you actually were placed in a good paying unionized job that provides benefits so that you can actually support your family. And so some of our members got access to those jobs, uh, Mr. Mayfield um, and many others. And then we actually expanded on that municipal retrofit program to do residential retrofits um, with this campaign that we called Repower LA. And we created a new entry-level workforce called Utility Precraft Trainee. And that's still going on today. We're talking about climate at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Marissa DeBeloy from the Overlook International Foundation, Gina McCarthy, former head of the EPA under President Obama, the climate author and activist Bill McKibben, the investor and advocate Tom Steyer, and Gloria Walton, an environmental justice leader in Los Angeles. Bill McKibben, one of the big debates that goes on in environmentalism is trying to bridge individual change and systemic change. And there's quite a debate about, people wanna say, I wanna do an action that matters. Um, so what kind of individual action matters and how can that be connected, you know, rise up to collective systemic change? The, you know, I think the early days of the climate discussion were a lot about individual action. What am I going to do? What my kind of light bulbs do I have? What am I driving? So on and so forth. Fine. And if the physics and chemistry of climate were such that we had 50 or 100 years to deal with the problem, probably a perfectly sound way to go about things. You know, humans and their societies really do change best when they change somewhat slowly and people have a little time to adapt and so on and so forth. But physics is, you know, calling the tune here. And it's very clear that we not only don't have 50 years, we had to start 50 years ago, and we didn't. And that means at this point that you can't make the math work one household at a time, one light bulb at a time. Um, that's why so much of the emphasis, I think, in the movement has shifted into standing up to those forces that are keeping us from making progress. We haven't talked about the fact that the climate fight has another side. There is the richest industry on earth, the fossil fuel industry, that's determined to keep things more or less as they are. And it's requiring 
us to stand up to them. So I guess to go back to your question, the most important thing an individual can do at this point is be a little bit less of an individual, join together with other people in those things that we call movements, the kind of things that Gloria or Tom organize that help us help <laughs> help compensate for the balance of power that, you know, I mean, look, left to its own devices, Exxon has all the money in the world. They have, I'm only a Methodist Sunday school teacher, but it's my firm belief they have more money than God. You know? <laughs> and, 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 and so left to their own devices, they'll happily go on wrecking the planet while the rest of us happily go on changing our light bulbs. Um, um, part of this is, is standing up to them, and that's why movement, that's why the kind of organizing that Gloria's talking about, that Tom's doing on campus, that, that's why that's so crucial. That's what, when it's done right, it opens up the space in where people like Gina can get their job done. We have a question from Twitter from Ann Hancock. Uh, we'll put this to Gina McCarthy. What do you recommend climate movement leaders do to help the movement become more effective and powerful? You've been inside government at the highest levels. Answer that question. Well, I think right now to not focus so much on what's happening at the federal government because yeah. it's nothing. Um, and to, and to uh, you know, I suggest that people turn off their televisions and look at the real world. Um, and, and, you know, I, I have to say that what Tom is doing to actually go out to young people and, and get them engaged again is probably the most important thing that we can do right now. You know, I'm at Harvard, practice at Harvard, um, <laughs> because the students care more about social justice than you can ever imagine. One of the most popular courses at, at the B School, which is the Harvard <laughs> Business School, is called Reimagining Capitalism. Mm. Because it's not working. <laughs> you know, it's not working for everybody. And, and right now, I think a lot of what government does doesn't work because it's been specifically targeted to make it not work by people who don't want government to work because they have all the power. So we have to kind of grow up here and, and recognize that we, we have all the best arguments, but frankly, the people we're fighting against don't even okay. have to argue at all. They own it. Right. So we have to get to the students and remind them that we, this country has been through some very difficult times. I think that this is an extraordinary moment when we either save our democracy or we don't. And so they have to step up. We all have to step up and we have to stop arguing with one another and we just have to vote, we have to act, we have to forget about the things we can't change and we don't like and we have to make it the world we want. And it, that's it, it's hard work, pull up your pants, let's go. That's it. <laughs> can, Greg, can I give some numbers? Gloria wants to get in there. Go ahead. Because Gina just had a mic drop moment. So <laughs> thank you for just, and all of you, really putting it all out on the table, which is getting me excited. Um, and so I just really want to underscore some of the stuff that was said. One is that it's not enough to have an inside strategy alone, which I think is the dominant theory of change, which is what we tend to resort to. And the problem with just resorting to that is that one person on the inside of an institution that is being bombarded with corporate interests, lobbyists, financial interests, with the best intentions on the inside being pulled in that direction, you're only going to be able to, gosh, you're, you're gonna be able to work for what's possible within the confines of that institution, but not, what, what, not what's needed for local communities. And so that's why us on the outside, all of us in this room, all of the organizations that I've mentioned, um, it's, it's about us working structurally in connection with our decision makers on the inside. And more importantly, informing solutions, because the solutions really do come from us. Um, and then with this thing around corporate interest, you know, you talk about capitalism, and the thing with capitalism, it makes me think about patriarchy, it makes me think about racism, it makes me think about sexism, it makes me think about xenophobia, all of these things that every issue that we work on, including climate, is rooted 
in all of that icky stuff. And that's why we really have to have an intersectional approach. It's not enough to just deal with one of those, those pillars Absolutely. when they're all rooted in that same messed up system. And that's why it all really does need to be changed. And we need to have bold vision, innovative solutions that's coming from the bottom up, that's coming from all of us in this room and so many people who are not here. Marissa DeVolo, I want to get you in here in terms of, you know, you have a program for carbon offsets. That's one way to get people involved. Your thoughts on this conversation and whether that is a way to kind of get people who may not be that active to sort of as a starter mm -hmm. gateway action. Yeah, absolutely. So Cool Effect was founded on the idea that individuals can take an immediate, tangible, simple action for about seven bucks, you know, to, to reduce a ton of carbon pollution right then and right there. And we have a team of scientists that make sure that the projects on the platform are absolutely top notch. We go visit them. We make sure that every dollar anybody gives us has an impact. And we follow up with people over and over again, extremely transparent about how we, how we put these, talk to you about these projects, where your money went, et cetera. But what we're really trying to do is create a community of people who want to do more around climate. We have about 400,000 people already on the platform, and you know, they're offsetting, but they're also getting you know, all the news that we can, we can give to them. They're getting angry. They are getting tips from us on how to live a better lifestyle, you know, what they need to do voting-wise, et cetera. And you know, the research shows that when you do one action, you begin to think of yourself as an environmentalist. And so you're much more likely to do the next one and the next one. You know, I mean, who knows, the, the next Bill McKibben or Gina McCarthy might be sitting in front of Cool Effect right now donating 10 bucks, and, you know, and we'll, we'll see where that goes. And you know, so that's the, that's the community aspect that we're building. But even the, the credit aspect has a lot to be said for it. So the voluntary carbon market over the last 10 years has reduced 400 million tons of carbon pollution. Cool effect projects themselves have reduced 17 million tons of carbon pollution. And in the last you know, two and a half years since Cool Effect was created, we've reduced directly through the platform 600,000 tons of carbon pollution. And what does that mean? Well, it means completely eliminating the footprint of 26,000 Americans for an entire year. Or it means completely eliminating the, uh, the impact of 326,000 flights from New York to San Francisco. Or if you prefer, it means completely eliminating 1,000 Mar-a-Lago presidential golf trips. <laughs> 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 but it's about, it's about coming together as a community and, and taking action and, you know, and having an impact together. You know, we all need to be in, we're all in this together. We all need to be doing absolutely everything we can be doing. And the thing about Cool Effect and the offsets is it's a way to, you know, know that you're having an impact in a highly transparent, not very expensive, very simple way. listening to a Climate One conversation about solutions from states, cities, businesses, and advocacy groups. Coming up, more from our special program recorded at the recent Climate Summit in San Francisco. Money is the oxygen on which the fire that is global warming burns. If we are able to stamp out that supply of money, then that fire will begin to dwindle. Next, when Climate One continues. This is Climate One, and we're talking solutions at the recent Climate Summit in California with Marissa D. Beloy from Overlook International Foundation, Gina McCarthy, former head of the EPA under President Obama, the climate author and activist Bill McKibben, the investor and advocate Tom Steyer, and Gloria Walton, an environmental justice leader in Los Angeles. Let's pick things up with our lightning round. I have some true or false questions for our guests, uh, beginning with Tom Steyer. True or false, you made a lot of money off Canadian tar sands and Indonesian forests. I will say this. I know we made money off fossil fuels, and I don't specifically remember some of that, but we invested in every part of the economy. And starting in 2008, I came to the conclusion it was wrong, and so I've been divested for years, and I decided, in fact, we can't afford to have those kinds of activities, and so I don't. A little longer than true or false, but yeah, uh, um, <laughs> fair enough. Um, I don't like this game. Yeah. <laughs> 
gosh. Uh, yeah. G- 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 is it truth or dare? I mean, do we have to do yeah. something really bad? Gina McCarthy, oh, true, shoot, true or false? <laughs> yes. You are having difficulty figuring out how academia works. Yes, true. <laughs> See? True. That, oh, thank God that was easy. Maybe this, uh, also for Gina McCarthy, true or false, you are personally sick and tired of hearing about polar bears. Yes, true. (laughs) I love them, they're cute, but they're not my grandson. True or false, Gloria Walton, you sometimes don't talk about climate concerns because you think people don't want to hear the doom and gloom. False. (laughs) I mean, y'all feel me. It's like I talk about what's real and what needs to be said in any given moment. Bill McKibben, true or false, villainization could be the downfall of the climate movement? I think uh, just the opposite. Uh, the, <laughs> the, moment that people started to, the moment that people started to understand that there was um, someone that needed fighting was the moment that it turned serious and got real. That's why, I mean, look at the people who are out in the street in San Francisco. The first four blocks of that march were all indigenous people, mostly from North America, but from around the world. Yes. You, don't think, you don't think they get that there's like a villain in, the, I mean, you know, exactly how much American history do you need to kind of <laughs> figure that out, you know? Um, um, so, and, and I think and, Bill's equivocating here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> let, me ask, let me ask Marissa DeBeloy, uh, true or false, carbon offsets inhabit a shady and murky world. That is true, and that's exactly why Cool Effect was created. Gina McCarthy, true or false, President Obama could have got a carbon price through Congress in 2009 if David Axelrod and Rahm Emanuel had encouraged him to try harder. Mm, that's a very good question. I don't think so. Also for Gina, because uh, right. <laughs> you like this so much. Uh, true or false, coal state Democrats blocked the Clinton-Gore administration from putting a price on carbon in 1994 in the form of a BTU tax. I believe that's true. West Virginia. Tom Steyer, true or false, corporations wield way too much influence over our democracy. No question about it. Um, That's a tough one. (laughs) That's a a basic fact of American democracy and politics. Well, they are people, you know, right? Uh, Marissa DeBeloy, polar bears are amazing, iconic creatures that evoke strong, positive emotions among many Americans. I'm going to go with false, because I think people are sick of seeing polar bears, and I think they're sick of the doom and gloom around climate. I think what they want is a, to understand that there are actions that they can take, that there's a message of hope out there, that in any case, and you know, sometimes the facts support that hope, and sometimes they don't, but we still need to, be, you know, we're all in this together, and we still need to go forward and solve it. Last one, uh, true or false, Bill McKibben. Tom Steyer is running for office. He just can't decide which one. <laughs> why, why are you asking me? <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> I thought he might have told you. Because <laughs> I know if we ask him, we're not sure. Get, let's give them a round for getting <laughs> <laughs> We're all friends. <laughs> good work. Ah, so good. Great. <laughs> good work, uh, friend. Question from Facebook, uh, Don Hall. Can you s- please oh, speak no. to your vision of the world we want in addition to what we don't? What would a truly post-carbon, just sustainable, and resilient society look like? Bill McKibben, let's have you paint that picture. And I want to preface this by saying, I remember one of your books, I think it was Deep Economy, that said one of the primary accomplishments of the American economy recently was building bigger houses further apart from each other. (laughs) Um, So tell us what that future picture looks like. Yeah, I think one of the things that we've gotten very hung up on is the idea that what humans mostly want is more stuff when probably past a certain point, what we want is communities that work and connection with each other. And I will say a word, though I know it's unpopular on this stage in a sense politically incorrect. Let me say a word too for polar bears and other wildlife, you know? (laughs) Um, 
Um, it'd be nice to imagine a world where um, the flora and the fauna that we were born onto this planet with had some room too. Um, you know, the human being evolved in contact with each other and in contact with the world around us. And one of the things that's saddest about the world is how hard it is for so many people to get to have some contact with the world around them. You know, when you, when you, I mean, in California, when we let people put oil wells next to people's schools and houses, what's the chance that you're going to be, you know, playing outside when you're a kid, you know what? I mean, that takes that off the map. So keeping that in mind, instead of doing what we've done for the last hundred years, which is answer every single question through, the, the only thing we've asked is, will this make the economy larger or not? Okay. And in the process, we've built an extraordinarily large economy, almost all of which is owned by 1% of the people. And, and in the process, we've wrecked the planet around us and the communities on it. So let's ask new, more interesting questions, I guess I'd say. Fair enough. Uh, Tom Steyer, one of the key points of the, the climate summit that Jerry Brown put together in San Francisco was having corporations make specific targets. People are looking to corporations in the absence of federal action. Your take on that, is that greenwashing? Are corporations really doing, moving the economy, all these announcements, science-based targets? Is that real action moving toward a cleaner economy? I do think it's real, but I don't think it's nearly sufficient. And let me draw a comparison to American history. You know, after, in the beginning of World War II, the president, Franklin Roosevelt, called in the auto companies and said, you know, we're just not prepared for this war. And I've got to ask you that you're going to have to dedicate a lot of your manufacturing to making tanks and ships and airplanes so that we can fight these fascists. And they came back after a weekend and said, you know, we're more than willing to go. We think we 20% of our production can be dedicated to the war effort, and that's something we'd like to do. And he said, well, let me explain to you what I'd like you to do. It will be 100% of your production, or you will be out of business. So when we talk about what this society has to do to represent the values that we need, that Bill's talking about, that Marissa's talking about, that Gene is talking about, that Gloria's talking about. We have to have the courage to stand up for the values that are the basis of this society. And that means we're gonna have to go to the people themselves and their elected representatives to determine what those values are. Not to the controllers of the large corporations to ask them to give us some crumbs, and I'm not, those are meaningful, and those are not people who I v would vilify. I would say, look, I am not counting on them to put us ahead of their shareholders and their bottom line. I'm looking to the American people and the will and values of the American people with a broad democracy to make sure that the people of South Central LA are taken into account fairly. Mm -hmm. And so when I, do I welcome corporations doing something good the way those auto companies were willing to do something good in World War II? Sure, I do. And I want to give them credit for it. But do I think that that's going to be sufficient for us to have a just society or to represent the values of America or to do it in a just way so that we treat people equitably across race, gender, sexual orientation, years in the country? I absolutely do not. I think that's a question for the American people and the values that we all represent. Fair. Gina McCarthy, you uh, were on the other side of the table from a lot of auto companies. They made some of the biggest pledges after the Great Recession, the bankruptcy, the, the uh, you know, America bailed out the auto companies. They were the first ones in line as soon as Donald Trump were elected saying, ease off. So your, your take on, on the corporations and what works to pressure them to bring them along. The auto companies, I think, negotiated in good faith. Somehow they forgot that. <laughs> they, they did. I mean, they have made a lot of money as they've moved to cars that, that the country actually would like to buy, which they weren't doing when we first negotiated these. I do think, honestly, uh, that part of the challenge with this administration 
is that they are interested in, in simply undermining everything the Obama administration did, and they're frankly not even listening to the automakers, because many of them do not want these revisited. Uh, they, they do, there are many that want tweaks. Whether those tweaks are good, bad, or indifferent, I don't know. But I think the challenge that we have today is that this administration is simply playing to its base. They are not playing to their industries, unless they're part of that base. They are not listening to the automakers. They're not even listening to the utilities, the vast amount of which are actually fine with many of the rules that have gone before that we passed. And they are simply doing their own thing. Um, it, it couldn't be more disconnect. This administration couldn't be more disconnected from the American people um, than they are. Uh, it, it's just remarkable. Question from Twitter. Uh, Joyce Yao asks, when can we start talking about the unpopular sacrifices required to reverse the damage already done? For example, meat intake globally. Well, I, I'd Mercy say we need, I mean, this is something that we put on the Cool Effects site and we routinely send out to our, to our users. I mean, we need to start talking about it today. You know, we needed to start talking about it 50 years ago. I think anybody who thinks that we're going to continue to live exactly the same lifestyle that we've been enjoying for the last, I don't know how many years, is, is crazy. You know, these are real changes and there are things we're going to have to do. And, and in the grand scheme of things, they're really not that hard. Tom Steyer, you own a cattle ranch. Your view on whether beef is, you know, ought to be done with or beef can be part of the solution. So we do own a cattle ranch. And the point of that cattle ranch is a gigantic science experiment. Because the question we have is, is there a way to raise cattle to actually sequester carbon in the soil? So that we can find out if doing it in the old-fashioned way when there were herds of undulants walking across the North American plains, the plains of Africa, that in fact, can we put a bunch more carbon into the soil for about 45 years, which in fact would reverse some of the climate change while the rest of the world is catching up and making changes. And I, I'm not sure where that's coming out. Obviously, we are doing scientific studies and we have some preliminary reads, but there's no question whether Marissa's right. We're gonna have to have a different food system and a different understanding of what nutrition is as a society and we're gonna to have to run the whole food system, I think, with a different set of values. And that's something which I think we're gonna end up having very, very tasty food. And we, it's, people are reluctant to change things. I mean, we all are. But I think that we should understand that when we change things, it doesn't have to mean we're just taking away things. We're gonna come up with some new stuff. And it's gonna be fun. And you know, American food has always gotten better. The fact that we have to change it isn't gonna make it worse. It's gonna be better. Food is a very positive story. Uh, question for Gina McCarthy from Facebook, uh, Thomas Van Dyke. Why has Harvard not divested from fossil fuels? Thomas, I wish you would ask them that. I've asked the same <laughs> question, and the students ask it every single day, and we were just talking about that. You know, I think this, this, this challenge is certainly in, in the academic world, and, but it's not solely the academic world. You know, the question needs to be asked of Harvard is what, what's Harvard's va value? What are they standing up for? Um, and I think we all have to ask ourselves that. We have to ask ourselves individual, as communities, as corporations, and as institutions. And, and really, uh, I don't know the answer to the question. I don't think that anyone has given an answer to that question. And I think the question needs to be asked until the answer is a better one. Bill McKibben, tell us about, you've been involved in a, a divest, invest, and it's gone from a small amount of money to a huge amount of money pretty quickly. Tell us the scope and, and regionally where divestment is happening. Uh, the divestment thing has been a remarkable ride, one that we didn't quite expect when we started it five or six years ago, spurred on by memories of the fight against apartheid. Um, and in fact, it was Desmond Tutu was one of the early people saying, do this, take this tool again. It's now much larger than that. I think there was a press conference where the, the total was $6.24 trillion uh, in endowments and portfolios that have now divested in part or in whole. And what began with small colleges in you know the corners of this country. It's now New York City, it's now London. Uh, New York City, the mayors in New York and London yesterday challenged all the other mayors in the world to divest their pension funds. The country of Ireland 
the whole country of Ireland divested its holdings in fossil fuels last month. Okay, Ireland is Ireland so is cool. Gina, way to go! <laughs> so, it's totally me. I, I, I know that. So what's so it's so it's become an extraordinary tool to try and take on the power that we were talking about before. Money is the oxygen on which the fire that is global warming burns. And if we are able to stamp out that supply of money, then that fire will begin to dwindle. And divestment is a huge part of that. And just to get back, I mean, Harvard may be the last place on earth to divest. I don't know. I'm really glad that Gina's going to be giving it the college try. I want to, I want to call out uh, uh, for, for Tom's wife, Kat Taylor, who was on the Harvard, I believe, on the Harvard board of whatever it's called, Overseers, Overseers which is a, tells you something right there. Um, uh, hey, uh, I just started there. Give me a break. Kat, Kat, Taylor, yeah. Kat Taylor resigned in protest from the Harvard board of Overseers because they wouldn't divest. Let's hope that, I mean, look, if there's any reason at all to have establishments, you know, and Harvard is a great example of an establishment, uh, it's that in moments of crisis, they might actually provide some leadership that um, Harvard hasn't, but it could, and so could a lot of other places, and that would be great. We have to yeah. end it there. We've been talking about healing the climate and moving to clean energy at Climate One with Mirsa D. Beloy, Executive Director of the Overlook International Foundation, Gina McCarthy, Chief of the US EPA, now a professor at Harvard, Bill McKibben, the author and climate activist, Tom Steyer, the political activist and climate advocate, and Gloria Walton, an environmental justice leader in Los Angeles. Podcasts of this and other Climate One shows recorded with a live audience are available wherever you podcast. You can join the conversation using our Twitter handle at Climate One. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time, everybody. <laughs> Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea, Devin Strolovich, and Claire Schoen edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.